Our text for today is from our first reading from the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 4, as we continue on with our series, Returning Home, all about God's faithfulness to his people and his promises, Ezra, chapter 4. And I want to begin this morning with a question. It's sort of a strange question, but it's something for you to think about. And the question is this. Does a fish know that it is wet? Does a fish who has lived its entire life, its entire existence, surrounded by water, immersed within the water, Does that fish actually understand, does it realize that it is wet? And the answer, yes, indeed, I submit to you, is no. <laughs> that it does not. In order to have an understanding of wetness, you have to have some kind of maybe understanding of dryness. And for a fish that's truly lived its whole life, its whole existence, surrounded, immersed in the water, it simply is just how it is. It doesn't understand that it's wet, I mean, a fish's cognitive abilities aside. I think in a similar way, we live our lives, our entire lives, surrounded in the culture in which we live, immersed within the particular culture in which we live. And just like a fish doesn't realize that it's wet, I think oftentimes we do not realize how much we are influenced by the culture in which we find ourselves. The culture which influences our thoughts, our opinions, our values, our beliefs, what we know to be true. We are so caught up within, immersed and surrounded by the culture. We need something, of course, that's outside of any particular culture, something that is eternal, something that can shine its truth through whatever the particular zeitgeist or worldview of the day is, and that, of course, is God's holy and inspired word. And it's something of what we see here in this text from Ezra chapter 4. There's three things I hope we see in God's word today. First of all, I hope we see something of the pressure in which we live as God's people. Secondly, I hope we see something of the darkness in which we live. And then thirdly, I hope we see that in response to that, that we can answer the question, how then should we live as God's people in the world today? The pressure in which we live, the darkness in which we live, but then how then should we live as God's people in the world? So let's dig in to God's word. First of all, the pressure in which we live, and by that I mean the pressure that God's people have always experienced throughout the ages, whatever the particular culture, the pressure to give in and the pressure to conform 
and the pressure to perhaps water down the unchanging truth of God's word in an ever-changing culture in which we live. There is pressure. Do you feel the pressure in which we live today? It is not dissimilar from the same pressure that God's people experienced all those years ago before the exile and after the exile here in Ezra chapter 4. The pressure to conform rather than to be transformed by God's word. Now, in order to understand the context of what's happening here in Ezra chapter 4, and they're starting to rebuild the temple as we talked about last week, we have to once again kind of give you the overview of what's happening here. A lot of you know the Old Testament, but a lot of you don't, aren't that familiar with the history of the Old Testament, and so we want to give you that quick overview once again to remind you that, you know, in the beginning, let's go all the way back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and created human beings to have a relationship with him, and we rebelled against him and pushed him away. We sinned, and in that moment of our rebellion, God enacted his plan of salvation, and he made a promise to Adam and Eve. He made a promise that one a seed of a woman would come into the world and crush the head of the serpent. One is going to come into the world who's going to be the Savior, who's going to defeat sin and evil and darkness and death itself. It was the promise of a Savior that was given to Adam and Eve. And that promise of a Savior to Adam and Eve was handed down literally through the generations. The promise of a Savior eventually to Noah and his family saved through the flood. And from Noah's family descended down, that promise of a Savior was given to Abraham and to Isaac and then to Jacob and the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel who eventually ended up in Egypt, enslaved for over 400 years. They were led out of Egypt through the Exodus by Moses and into the promised land. And the promise of a Savior went with them. And when they were in the promised land, eventually God gave them kings. He gave them King Saul, and then he gave them King David, and then David's son Solomon, King Solomon. And then after King Solomon, sadly, the people of God were divided, and there was a northern kingdom, which you see in the purple. It was called the kingdom of Israel, and there was a southern kingdom, which was the kingdom of Judah, which you see in the green. And the northern kingdom, its capital was called Samaria, and the southern kingdom of Judah, its capital was Jerusalem. And in Judah, that's where the promise of a Savior lied in the Jewish people. In 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire came and dominated that entire region and destroyed the northern kingdom. They were gone, destroyed Samaria, and carted the people away, and it was no more. The map doesn't really show it, but the city of Jerusalem actually stood firm. And the tribe of Judah and the kingdom of Judah, in some smaller way, actually stood firm and that promise of the Savior continued. But in 586 B.C., then the Babylonian Empire came and took over the region, and that's when Jerusalem was destroyed. 586 B.C., the Babylonians come in. King Nebuchadnezzar, we talked about this last week, destroys the city of Jerusalem, tears down the wall, destroys the temple, and thousands and thousands of God's people are taken into captivity over 1,600 miles from Jerusalem to the great and terrible city of Babylon. The promise of a Savior went with them. 
And God had promised them that one day they would return home to Jerusalem. And that's exactly what happened 70 years later when now the Persian Empire took over this whole region under their emperor Cyrus the Great. And God had moved in Cyrus's heart to allow the exiled Jewish people to return home from Babylon. Thousands of them returned back to Jerusalem, and he even gave them funds, he gave them money to be able to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls, to rebuild the temple. And that's where our story took us last week, where they started to lay the foundation of the temple there in Jerusalem. And some of the people who saw the temple being built, they were rejoicing and praising God. But others who remembered how grand and glorious and great the old temple was, they were lamenting and crying aloud in sorrow and their mixture, their voices came together. And that takes us to where we are in Ezra chapter four because now there's opposition and there is pressure the pressure of the surrounding people and culture in which they are now living. Follow along as I read again from Ezra chapter 4. It says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was like a governor Jewish governor and the heads of father's houses, they said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do and we've been sacrificing to your God ever since the days of Eseradon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. That was about 140 years that they had been worshiping Yahweh. It says, verse 3, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Now, I got to tell you, when I read that, and on the surface level, the people of God are not coming across too well. You have nothing to do with us in the building of our temple to our God. They're coming across like the jerks. They're coming across as bigots. They're coming across as the people who are exclusive. This isn't a concern with you. It is about us and our people and our God, and we want nothing to do with it. And these people who are living around them say, look, we worship Yahweh. We worship the Lord. We just want to help you build your temple. Can you imagine if the people in the neighborhoods and the community around us said, we want to come to our Father, and not only that, we want to take all of our money. We want to pay down your mortgage. Woo-hoo, come on. But Zerubbabel and the Jewish leaders said no. You have nothing to do with us in the building of this temple to our God, Yahweh. Now, what is going on? Why do they have that reaction? Well, who were these people who wanted to help them? The text describes them as adversaries of Judah. And remember, it's in Judah and the Jewish people where the promise of the Savior lies. 
says they are adversaries of them. Who were these people? Were there people that back in 722 BC, the Assyrian Empire had brought all these people with them and transplanted them. There's people from living all these sorts of different regions. They ended up living there about 140 years. They've lived around the city of Jerusalem now. And what happened is that these people intermingled and started to marry some of the Israelites who still were remaining in the area and some of the Jewish people who were still remaining in the area. And it is true that they worshiped Yahweh. It is in part true that they worshiped Yahweh. It says we worship Yahweh as you do, but they did not worship Yahweh as they did because not only did they worship Yahweh, but they also worshiped about 20 or 30 other gods as well. They were polytheistic, not monotheistic. So they worship Yahweh on the Sabbath day, but Monday through Friday they were worshiping Baal and Molech and any number of other gods as well. And this is what Zerubbabel and those Jewish leaders understood. They said, look, we cannot allow you to help us in the rebuilding of our temple because we know you have a wrong understanding of how religion works, of who God is. We believe in one God, monotheism, the true God of Israel, the God of steadfast love, the God of the promise, the God of the Savior. And they also understood it was exactly for that reason, worshiping Yahweh on the Sabbath day and worshiping all these other gods. That's the exact reason why 70 years before they'd been taken away into exile in the first place, why God allowed that to happen to them. And they said, we simply cannot lose the truth. We cannot water down the truth of the one true God. You have nothing to do with us. You see the pressure that they were under to conform. And look, verse 4 actually describes some of that pressure. Boy, I think it really connects with us today as God's people. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah, made them afraid to build, and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. It says, first of all, they discouraged the people of Judah. The Hebrew there is so visceral. It's so great. It literally means they made their arms limp. There's social pressure. You feel any social pressure to change the truth of God's word, to conform to the changing culture. I'm, for one, I'm tired of, of, of being the, the, maybe seen as the hate-filled person or the jerky person or the bigoted person or the person who's against everything else. There is such social pressure to change, to conform, to give in. But also there's what we might call legal pressure. It says they bribed counselors. That's government officials. They were bribing government officials to take legal action against them. And they actually halted the building of the temple for 20 years. There was a pastor in Finland a month ago, just a month ago. He actually was the bishop of a Lutheran denomination in Finland, and that Lutheran bishop was arrested. He was arrested because he wrote a paper, and in the paper he described how God loves everyone and that God wants all to be saved. God loves everyone, but in that paper, this bishop, this head of this Lutheran church, in the paper simply described what the Bible teaches 
in a loving way about marriage between a man and a woman. And that pastor, that bishop, was arrested for incitement against a group of people. There was a pastor in England about two months ago who was preaching in the public square and preaching the same thing on the biblical view of marriage, and he too was arrested. There's pressure. There's increasing pressure. It's not new for the people of God. It's all the way back here in Ezra chapter 4, and it's maybe something that you're experiencing as well, but I want you to understand that, that we live within this pressure, the pressure in which we live, first of all, but secondly, the darkness and the blindedness in which we live, because apart from God's grace, or we could even say his common grace, apart from the truth that he reveals to us in his word, The human heart is capable of such hardness and such blindness. And more and more, doesn't it seem like we live in an age where things that are clearly good things and virtuous things, and and the culture around us more and more sees it as bad things or shameful things, and things that are clearly wrong and evil things, and the world rejoices and celebrates. Isn't this wonderful? Now let me give you an example from the Old Testament. This is about a thousand years before the time of Ezra. This was when Moses was preparing the people of God, the Israelites, to enter into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 12, he's talking to them and he's preparing them. He's saying, look, you're going to enter into the promised land. There's all these people and they have all these different gods and all these different ways of worshiping. Make sure you stay true to the one true God and to his word. Do not mix and mingle with them. Watch out for them. And it actually says this in Deuteronomy chapter 12. 12, it says, when you live among all these other people, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, for every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods, for they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. And I won't go into any detail of what that practice was like, but they sacrificed their children to Baal, to Molech. And God here is saying, don't do that. And it is astonishing, is it not, that God actually had to tell them not to do that? Isn't it obvious that that is evil and dark and wicked and an abomination? Isn't it obvious? And certainly God's people never did that. I mean, certainly they, that's a, I mean, of all the command, all the rules, that's a pretty easy one not to, not to break, Right? for almost a thousand years. Continually, they gave in to the pressure. They couldn't see the darkness of the people around them. And they even sacrificed their children. And then they would turn back, and they would turn back. But then they would go and do it again. And then they would turn back. And this is why 722 B.C., God says, okay, Assyria, you take them over. And 586, okay, Babylon, you take them darkness, 
that can overcome the blindness apart from the truth or the light of God's word. Why would the Israelites do that? Because the pressure, look, it was an ethical good to worship Baal and Molech and to offer an infant in this way. It was ethically good. And again, they were the jerks. They were the bigots. They were the, they were the people who were exclusive. They were the bad people for not sacrificing their children to these gods. Because if they didn't do that, then those gods might have their wrath and they might harm the community. Don't you care about the community? Don't you care about the common good? What's wrong with you, Israelites? Oh, yeah, I guess we better do that. The pressure which can come from the darkness. So we live within that pressure. We live within this darkness. Do you see it? Do you understand? And look, fill in the blank of how that might apply in our culture today. But thirdly, the question then as we wrap up here is this. How then do we live? That's the pressure in which we live. That's the darkness in which we live. How then do we live? As God's people. And I think there's two ways it's typically done, both of which are wrong. The first way, how do we live? Give in. I'm tired. Yeah, let's conform. You know what? Yeah, I agree. This is wrong in the Bible. We should take this part out. And this part is wrong. We should take this part. Oh, I like this part. We'll keep that. And this part no longer applies. We'll get rid of that. And we conform God's word rather than being transformed by it. And we can do that. And look, there are thousands of churches and churches which bear the name of Lutheran, which give in. And and they, look, I understand. We want to make the Bible more appealing or Christianity more acceptable. The other option, not giving in or conforming, the other option that I think is our, maybe more our temptation is to run away and hide and to wall ourselves off and to just kind of stay in our little Christian ghetto and stay in our little cloistered walls and come to church and go home and, and, and just kind of live our lives. And maybe every now on social media, we lob a little truth grenade over the walls of the church and see what happens. Like any likes, any comments? But I would submit to you that Jesus Christ would have us live in neither of those ways. Do you hear him in, this, in the prayer to the Father in our gospel reading? Do you hear how he said, describing you, us, he said, you are not of this world. You are citizens of another world, citizens of another kingdom. You're not of this world. But did you hear what Jesus also said? Just as I've been sent into the world, I'm sending them into the world. Jesus sends you into the world. You're not of the world, but boy, howdy. Boy, howdy. I've never said that in a sermon. <laughs> I've been two weeks vacation in Tennessee. Boy, howdy, y'all. <laughs> you are not of the world, but you are sent into the world as the hands of Christ. To shine his light, his truth, his love. And I wrap up with this illustration again from the Old Testament. This is from the time of the exile, 586 BC. Jerusalem is destroyed. It's burning. The temple is no more. And thousands of the Jewish people, God's people, have been taken and now they're in and around the city of Babylon, all those thousands of miles away. What would you have done? There was a lot of 
pastors, basically prophets, they were false prophets who said, don't go into the city of Babylon. I mean, you're here. You don't have to move into the city. Stay outside of the city. Wall yourself off. Protect yourself. Protect your family. But the prophet Jeremiah had another way. And this is what Jeremiah said to the people, the word of God. Jeremiah chapter 29. Listen to this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, those of you who are there in the city, in the city I want you to build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there, do not decrease, in other words, live your life, and it says this, verse seven, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Seek the welfare of the city in which I have sent you into exile and pray on its behalf. How then should we live, dear brothers and sisters? What is our calling? It's not to give in and conform, and it's not to wall ourselves off and just to hide away. What is the calling? The calling is to love. That's our battle cry, love! And serve. Jesus says, look, if you're somehow connected, the world has hated me, the world, in a certain sense, will hate you. If the world hates you, love. Serve. Give, pray. As I said a couple of weeks ago, you know, when you walk into a room, think to yourself. You walk into any room, any situation, you think, how can I make this room, this situation, at least 1% better in the name of Jesus Christ? Just 1%. Knowing and trusting. Oh, what's going to happen to the church? Oh, the churches are shrinking. Oh, what's happening to Christianity in America? Oh, my goodness. We can fret and worry. Look, 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire invades and destroys the northern kingdom. Was God's plan? Was the promise of salvation over? No, it was his plan. He was working through it all. 586 B.C., when the Babylonians come in and they destroy Jerusalem and the temple is a smoking ruin and thousands of God's people are now slaves in Babylon... What were the people thinking? It's all over. No, God's plan of salvation was still happening. When the Assyrians came in, when the Persians came in, when the Macedonian Empire came in with Alexander the Great, when the Roman Empire finally took over, you know what that was? They were simply pawns in God's massive battle plan to bring restoration and healing to all of this broken world. Our Father Lutheran Church could crumble to the ground Oh, the kingdom of God, the kingdom ours remaineth. He's working, he worked to bring Jesus, the savior, the promise made to Adam and Eve all those years ago. And he defeated death and the grave and darkness and evil. And one day he will return and he's still at work in and through us. And so we do not conform to the pressure. We do not give in and we do not wall ourselves off. We love, we love and we serve in the name of Jesus Christ and see through the darkness with the light of his truth.
And to him be all the glory. Amen.